0: Our sermon text from this morning comes from 1 Chronicles Chronicles 17, verses 1 through 15. Now when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. It is... Not you who will build me a house to dwell in, for I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day, but I have gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel... And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are filled to walk with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house, and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David.
1: Please pray with me. Father, I pray that as we, as we look at your word, that we'll feel the weight of eternity, that the things that pertain to you will become precious to us, that we'll consider all a loss compared to the glory of knowing Christ our King, who left his heavenly throne and he pursued people like us, and he died for our sins that we might have life forever. May that sing in our hearts this morning. We offer our praise and our thanks all to you. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Everyone loves a vacation. Some of us work for a vacation. And here's the ironic thing is, is we all love vacations, but in this room, we probably all have very different ideas when we think of what is a vacation. So if you're more of a outdoorsy, kind of adventurous type, you think, man, a week in the pristine woods, just a backpack and a tent. And other people are thinking that sounds like misery. No, no, no. It's a Caribbean vacation or a cruise, a Disney cruise, for instance, where all my food is provided. Or some might be a, a fishing trip to a lake or a you know, weekend away at a farm. We all have different ideas of what that might look like, but the purpose of a vacation is still going to be the same, right? Like we go on vacations because we want to rest, we want to relax, we want to kind of get away from our our, our regular routines and come back refreshed. We've probably all had this experience where we go on a vacation, and that's the goal. We go somewhere really cool, and there's so many other cool things to do that are kind of secondary things, but just fun things to do, and so we load our vacation with all this stuff, and then we get back home and we think, boy, I need a vacation from my vacation. Like I am exhausted. And the goal of going on that vacation was to rest and relax and kind of take a step back, and we get back, and we're like, all the other good things crowded out the main thing, the primary thing. Now, we're gonna find in in our text this morning is that 1 Chronicles 17 is pointing to the primary thing in the scriptures, the primary thing, what it means to be a Christian, and that is that the king has come, and he's died for sinners like us. But just like with our vacations, what we find is that it's just really easy for other good things to crowd out that main thing. And for the Jews, the temple was not the main thing. So we're going to find out. It was the coming of the king. So our outline this morning, we're going to look at first a logical next step. And second, we're going to see the temple is not the main thing. And then finally, third, the coming king is the main thing. And to give a recap, we're in the midst of a 12-week series through First and Second Chronicles. My promise is that it will be 12 weeks And no more. Um, And uh, if you remember from last week, we saw Saul is rejected. We just focus on him long enough to know that he's not the king. And then we see that David has been chosen and blessed by God. And we see part of the reason why David is called a man after God's own heart, because the first main action he does when he kind of comes into power is he brings the ark to Jerusalem, because he wants to make worship of God center to, to what they're doing in Israel. And this, this book of First and Second Chronicles is being written to returning exiles who've spent 70 years in exile and is trying to let them know, hey, as you come back and rebuild, what's primary? Let's look at our history and see what's primary about God, what's primary about his kingdom, and what should your rebuilding look like? That's kind of the background through all of this. So here, they have brought the ark to, um, to the city, and we pick up in chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. Now when David lived in his house... David said to Nathan, the prophet, behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan said to David, do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. There was probably some time lapse between chapter 16 when they bring the ark to Jerusalem and now. In fact, what we're told in 2 Samuel is that at this point in David's reign, God had given him rest from all, all the enemies out there. And so David, his reign's established Internally, it's established externally that the the, the enemies that threatened Israel have been subdued. He's kind of entering this golden era of his reign. He's hitting his stride, and so he's thinking, "Okay, well, what what next?" And his thought is, "Well, let me build a temple for the Lord." Now, some some cultural context is helpful here, and that this was kind of a common thing for ancient Near East kings, especially ones who were successful. They would build temples in kind of the height of their reign. It was kind of like a, a monument to their own success. Yes, it was to honor the god or gods, but really it was, kind of a, it was also a monument to their success as a king. It's kind of like how we think of presidential libraries. Like if the point of a presidential library was to keep archives, you could get a giant warehouse and do that really efficiently. But that's not the point. The point is to kind of be a monument to their legacy as a president. Well, that's kind of how temples operate at this time as well. And so when David says to Nathan, hey, I think it's time to build a temple, Nathan's not like, that's weird. Why would you do that? It's like, oh yeah, this is the logical next step. Of course, you as a king are flourishing, you're succeeding. This this is the next step for you as a king, is to build a temple for Yahweh. But what's interesting is, as we'll see, God actually has other plans. Now there's something I want to draw out of this that's just, I think, a helpful tidbit. The, The According to human reasoning, according to what you just logically would expect, it's like David's gonna build the temple, that's next. But One of the things we find is that the lived experience of following Jesus sometimes can contradict kind of human human reasoning and expectations. It does not always follow this kind of logical progression of what makes sense. When I'm trying to help people discern life decisions, there's a matrix I walk through that I think is really helpful. And so we'll look at, okay, if you're trying to make a life decision, should I take this job or not? First, we look for affirmation. Are there those in your life whom you value, who are, who are mature Christians, usually older than you, hopefully? Like, are they affirming you in this decision? It's the first thing you look for. Second, do you have a desire to do this? Because God often works through our desires. And then finally, third, is there an actual opportunity, right? So if I want to be president of the United States, and people are affirming me, but I don't have any... <laughs> But I don't have donors and network and all that stuff. It doesn't, doesn't really matter that I want to do this and I'm affirmed. Like, there has to be an opportunity. If all three of those are met, then usually, yeah, that's a green light. Go for it. But here's what's interesting. Is that David, he has affirmation. It's the prophet Nathan. Prophet Nathan he, the prophets were the voice of God. That's a big affirmation. Yes, do it. Whatever's in your heart. Um, what was the second one I said? Oh, yeah, desire. He wants to do it. He wants to build the temple. He has a desire. And then finally, he has the opportunity. God has given him rest from his enemies, he's given him a flourishing kingdom, he has the resources to do it, but yet God says, no, it's not going to be you. And that's why, really, that matrix needs a fourth one, which is not just to, you know, affirmation, desire, opportunity, but it also is, are you, are you at peace within your spirit about this? Is God given you promptings elsewhere? In our theological tribe, we tend to be very rational, linear thinkers, and that's a good thing, I think, But I wonder if sometimes we quench the Spirit because we're so focused on what makes rational, linear sense that we're not actually living in a felt reliance upon the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting, if we take acts seriously, that ought to be a regular part of a believer's life. There are times where Paul's saying, I'm going to go here, but yet the Spirit redirects him. It seems to be not a logical process all the time. So sometimes, sometimes the lived experience, again, the lived experience, not the doctrine of Christ, that's highly logical, God is the God of all truth, but the lived experience of following Jesus doesn't always follow this kind of obvious, logical progression. And Are we willing to obey even when we don't fully understand what the Spirit is leading us to do? So first, you see a logical next step, but that's not the plans that God has for David. Moving to our second point, the temple is not the main thing. Look at verses three to six. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, it is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. For I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day. But I've gone from tent to tent, from dwelling to dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? Whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So David desires to do this, but, he's, but God says, No, David. But here's the thing he, God doesn't say there won't be a temple. God does desire a temple to be built at some point, but he says, David, it's not going to be you. Now we find out later in 1 Chronicles 22, verse 8, why. David is recounting a conversation we had with God where God said, You shall not build my house, build a house to my name. As you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Now, this is really interesting. This, this is just a very, much, very much a side point. But David obeyed God in being a king, and he defended and delivered Israel from the surrounding nations, yet that bloodshed made him disqualified to build the temple. I don't want to build a mountain out of a molehill here, here, but we do have to be careful how we read the Old Testament. Because when we see stories, we have, to, we have to, to distinguish between what's descriptive, so what's just being described in the story, and what's actually prescriptive, what's given to us for an example. So the fact that the Israelites wore sandals, that's descriptive. It's not a, a, an example of, well, we as God's people must wear sandals. But that there are other parts that are obviously prescriptive. They're telling us, hey, this is what God desires for you. And sometimes, living in a fallen world... We find ourselves in situations where there doesn't seem to be a fully righteous alternative. Classic example is Nazi Germany. You're hiding Jews. The Gestapo comes to your front door and says, "Give us the. You know, Are you hiding Jews? You have two options. You can either lie. That's a sin, or you can give up the vulnerable. That's also a sin." This is part of the complexity of living in a fallen world. And so David delivers a people from people who, God people, from other people who want to crush and kill them, well, that was never in God's plan to have humanity and violent opposition towards each other. So anyways, we want to be careful when we look at the violence in the Old Testament, as if, oh, that is, that, that's like prescriptive for what we should want and do. There's, I just don't think there's any room for, for kind of war hawkism within Christianity. I'm no pacifist, But anyways, this is very much a side note, which I thought was really interesting, maybe too much for us. But anyways, interesting side note. But it won't be David. He's not going to want to build the temple. And again, that first Chronicles 22, 8, that comes later. But what this text focuses on of why it won't be David is two different reasons. First, because a temple was not necessary for God. Look at verse five again. For I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day, but I've gone from tent to tent, from dwelling to dwelling. I was like, look, in the ancient Near East, again, it was very common for gods to have temples. And for many of these gods, the temples were necessary to give the gods a place to live. When we look at the records that survive of, of kind of pagan religions and ancient Near East gods, or you look at the kind of Greek pantheon or the Roman pantheon, the gods that they worshipped looked a whole lot like people. Just people really powerful. <laughs> Almost like kind of like we think of like the Marvel cinematic universe. They're almost like superheroes. And so we got the same kind of pettiness and divisiveness and violence that you get in humans. They just were a lot more powerful. And similarly, gods actually needed the temples and, 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 and they needed to actually have sacrifices to feed them. And so what God is saying to David is look, I am not like those other gods. I am not a god who's made in your image. You are made in my image. And what that means is, I don't need you. You need me, David. I don't need a temple. I've been, I've been fine for 400 years. The ark's existed for 400 years, and we've been fine. I don't need you to build me a temple. It's not necessary. I'm not like those other gods. That's the first reason. And in fact, the temple, first reason, temple is not necessary. The second reason, that the temple was never meant to be the main thing. Look at verse 6. In all the places where I have moved with all Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God's saying, look, I don't need a temple, and it was never, it was never my main ultimate desire. Again, the, the ark's existed for 400 years. See, I didn't ask Moses to build a temple, and he was a great man of God. Didn't ask any of the judges It was never my main desire. And again, God does desire a temple to be built. It's not an unimportant thing. In fact, it would be a very important thing in the kind of story of salvation for that time, but it it wasn't even meant to be permanent. And that's why in John 4, Jesus, speaking to the Samaritan woman, says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, referring to the temple in Jerusalem, will you worship the Father, but the hour is coming and is now here, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The temple played a a part in the kind of story of salvation during that time but it was never meant to be permanent. There would come a time when it would not be necessary anymore. David, you don't need to build a temple because one, it's not necessary. I'm not like other gods. But two, that's not what I care most about anyways. It's not the main thing. This is a great encouragement to the exiles. Again, we've got to remember this is being written to returning exiles who spent 70 years with a destroyed temple. Now when you consider the promises that we'll look at, that God made towards this temple, where he said, this place will be a place called by my name. I will dwell here. The God who's created all things, who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, he's like, I'm gonna dwell in this building, and guess what, it doesn't matter where you might be, what you're going through, if you turn your face to my dwelling and pray, I'll hear you. Amazing promises. But now that the temple's been destroyed for 70 years, and the exiles come back. You can see them wondering, "Well, does God hear my prayers?" Is the temple is just a foundation, barely that left over. Can God still work without the temple? And so, what an encouragement to God, reminding the exiles, "Look, the temple was never necessary in the first place. I led Israel for 400 years. I led them through a wilderness. I delivered them from the greatest superpower of the time, and I did not do it with a temple. It's not necessary." God is still God. He's still present. He's still at work. That's an encouragement to us, too, I think. Because our church looks a lot different today than it did 10 years ago. It certainly looks a lot different than it did 50 years ago. And so it can be easy to to think, well, if our church never looks like it did in whatever, you know, kind of in your mind is the the golden years, if it never looks like that again, can God really work? Like, if we don't have these programs that used to be flourishing, can God continue to work? The encouragement is that Programs were never the main thing. Our ministry strategy was never the main thing. God is still God, and He's still at work, even when things look different. All right, so the temple, David, you don't need to build a temple, it's not the main thing. What is the main thing, though? And that's where we get to our third point. The coming king is the main thing. Read verses 7 to 15 with me. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I've cut off all your enemies before you, and I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When the days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And I will not take my steadfast love from him, and as I took it, from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. David thinks the temple is this next necessary logical step, but no, God's saying there's something more primary than a temple. David, the temple is not primary. What's primary is your dynasty. What's primary is one who will come from your lineage. That's what's primary. Now, it's interesting when we read this. This is what we come to the main theme of the scriptures. And that means is we come to the main theme of what it means to be a Christian. This is what holds the Old Testament, written 1,500 to 2,000 years before the New Testament. What holds it all together is this promise that God makes to David about his son or his descendant. Because what we see when we look at this, when we look at this promise, it, 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 we, we kind of want to look at it as if we're using bifocals. Um, if you know what those are, like the glasses where, um, you know, so if you, if you can't see distance, so you wear glasses, but then you try to read, you can't, you can't do it. So it'll create bifocals, which have a little part of the glass that lets you see close, and the rest lets you see distance. And that's kind of how we want to read this promise. Some of it applied to David's literal son, Solomon there are also parts of the promise that clearly were not fulfilled in Solomon, and those are the ones that are looking down the line, looking 900 years later towards the king, Jesus Christ. So let's look at the promises, and we'll we'll try to decipher which ones were fulfilled in Solomon, and which ones were actually pointing forward to Jesus Christ. So the promises first were that, and you can look in 1115, God promises David, you're going to have a son, and I'll establish his kingdom. And the son will be the one who will build the temple. Again, God is not saying, I don't want a temple. He's just saying, it's not going to be you, and it's not the most important thing. Your son will build this temple. And your son will have a throne that will last forever. And then lastly, he says, I'm going to have a unique relationship with your son. I will be a father to him, and he will be my son. Now, we see a lot, some of this was fulfilled in Solomon. So first, Solomon, well, David did have a son, and his kingdom was established, Solomon, now that wasn't, that, we, that couldn't be assumed. Because <laughs> when Solomon was being anointed or ordained as king, or whatever, you know, I think it was anointed, that's how they called it, he had competition. He had a brother who was trying to usurp the throne as well, and he was gaining a following. He even had Joab, the commander of the armies, join him. And so it was no sure guarantee that Solomon would be king, but yet God established him as king and gave him great success and and. and, and, and and well-being. So yeah, so that one was fulfilled in Solomon. Second, Solomon did build the temple. That was fulfilled in Solomon. But again, when we look at a throne that will last forever, what's interesting is that after Solomon died, the kingdom split into the northern and southern kingdom, and Solomon's son, the descendant of David, ruled over a very small portion of what used to be all of Israel. So, okay, well that doesn't that is, this seems to be calling into question the throne that will last forever. And by the time we get to the exiles, to whom is the, the original audience of Chronicles, there is no king. There are people who descend from David, but they're not king. And there's never a Davidic king again until Jesus comes back. Well, okay, this, is, this seems to be some promise that is not fulfilled in Solomon. And then we look at the, the unique relationship. Now, Solomon seems to have begun well. If you remember, God asked him, What do you want? You can have anything. He says, I want wisdom. I want wisdom to rule your people well. Wow, okay. But then First Kings makes it clear that towards the end of Solomon's reign, he begins to drift from a wholehearted worship to God. He begins to worship other foreign gods as well. Okay, well, Solomon was not the son to God in this unique way. And so we see that these promises were only partly fulfilled in Solomon. And again, this is what gives us, what ties together the Bible. This gives us the arc of what the Bible is about. Because what God is saying is, look, I'm, I'm going to send a king, and it's not Solomon. Which, for Israel, Solomon was the high point. He was the golden era of Israel. It's hard to... Like, After Solomon, the desire was always, let's get back to how it was under Solomon. A united kingdom, they were fabulously wealthy. Other nations were like sending them gifts. The queen of Sheba was coming to hear from their king. It was like, let's go back to the golden era. But what God is saying is, look, no, 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 no. There's something even better that's coming. And that's what you're waiting for as a people. And so when we get finally to the New Testament, Matthew 1.1 begins the New Testament this way the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. This is hearkening back to this promise made 900 years before, he's saying, look, 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 the promise God made to David, it's about to be fulfilled, this is a big deal. The son of David, Jesus was of the lineage of David. And then after Jesus' baptism in Matthew three seventeen, God speaks over Jesus and he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Do you see, again, God had promised David, I will be his father, I will be a father to him, he will be my son. And here's God saying, this is my son. And that is a common refrain throughout the New Testament of Jesus saying, I am the son of God, God is my father. And then when Gabriel is prophesying to Mary in Luke 1:31 to 33, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus and he'll be great and called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. A throne that will go on forever. These old prophecies are finally coming true. This is what it was all about. What God is saying to David is the temple, as important as it was, is not the main thing. The main thing is this king who's gonna come there's one important difference. Because David was a deliverer. He delivered the people from Goliath, from the foreign nations. And this king will be a deliverer too, but it'll be different. Matthew one twenty one again, Gabriel speaking to Mary, says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their, th- from their sins. What is, the, what is the scripture all about? What is the main theme of scripture? What holds it all together is this. The king who came to save people from their sins. That's what all this is about. Our greatest threat is not the coronavirus, although that's a serious thing. It's not financial ruin. It's not health trouble. It's not relational discord or strife. It's not political enemies, foreign enemies if you're David. Our greatest threat is is sin. Because here's the thing, right? You get sick, worst that can happen is your body turns to dust quicker. But we come from dust and we will return to dust. But sin is eternal. Sin has the power to trap us and blind us and keep us from the only God there is, the only source of life there is. The consequences of sin are forever. So the main theme of Scripture is the God who came as a king to save us from our sins because that is what is most dangerous to us. Now, I'm going to give a caveat. That's the main thing. That's not the only thing. There's many other things that God spoke about that are important. But you really could say that all good theology, all good Christian understanding is simply a a kind of unpacking that main theme, that a king came for us to die for us, to take away our sins, to save us from our sins, to deliver us from what is our greatest enemy. Now here's the thing, though, is, is this is the main thing, but we have the tendency to try to make other things the main thing. And so Israel eventually did make the temple the main thing, even though God warned them here that that's not the case. The first temple that Israel rebuilt, the exiles rebuilt, was a very unimpressive thing. In fact, there were, there were Israelites who were who were children when they went into exile and they remembered the old temple, the one that Solomon built and all its grandeur, and they wept when the new one was built. If anyone had wept when our serves were built, I would have felt very sad. <laughs> they wept because they remembered how great the Solomon's temple was and how weak sauce this new one is. But Herod the Great, who is the king who was king when Jesus was born, who was a maniacal, evil man. Sick and cruel in so many ways, was also a brilliant administrator and builder. And one of the things he did is he enlarged and improved the temple, spent 40 years doing it. And by the end, the temple was an, 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 a majestic, magnificent, one of the wonders of the world. And so we get a story in, in Mark 13, where Jesus disciples 13:1 says, "They come out of the temple." and one of his disciples said to him, "Look, teacher, what wonderful stones! What wonderful buildings!" Which is kind of a strange thing to mention the stones but they are actually parts of that temple that are left, the kind of foundation pieces, and they're made out of massive stones. One of them is called the Western Stone. It measures 40 feet long, 11 feet high, 6 feet deep. It's estimated to weigh 200 to 300 tons. Now, before the day of mechanization, when you could bring a whole bunch of cranes out there, like you're moving this by pulleys and ropes and human strength, it 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 was an architectural wonder. How do they do this? But Jesus tells them right after that, he says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. By the time Jesus came, the temple had become the main thing. It was impressive, majestic, amazing, pristine, impressive, and the hearts of the people were dead. It was so beautiful and impressive on the outside. Inside, it was rotten to the core. And so finally, when the king, who is the main thing, came, they didn't recognize him because they are so taken up with all these secondary things. And we know of churches like that. They look incredible on the outside and the inside. They're just dead. It's not the main thing. I'm curious, what are you tempted to make the main thing? We don't have a temple. but We're all tempted to take secondary things that are good things, usually, and make the main things. When you think of Christianity, is it, is it primarily about just moral living, being a better person, living a holy life before God. Important, absolutely, but not the main thing, right? The Bible is not a manual for the righteous. It's good news for the sinner. Do you get the difference? It's not a manual of how to live well for those who got it together. It's a proclamation to those who are dead in their sins that there's good news for them, there's salvation. in Jesus Christ, the king who died, It's a massive difference. Similarly, the Bible main thing is not about giving biblical dating advice. It's not about giving the biblical way to exercise. (laughs) I'm sure there's a book on, you know, seven biblical principles of, of, uh, you know, Christian exercise. And when you look at the the top-selling Christian books, that's like what they focus on, all these secondary things. And some of them are not even, I mean, I I don't think we can faithfully read the Bible and come up with the seven principles of godly exercise. I just don't think that's there. But here's the difficulty, is when these secondary issues are genuinely important. Like, we all recognize, okay, exercise is not the main thing. That's the silly example, Mike. But when those secondary issues are actually really important, And right now, as Christians, we're confronted with all kinds of issues. And people are telling us, Christians need to think hard about this, and this is a gospel issue, or it it flows from the gospel, or it's centrally important. And oftentimes, they are really, really important. But they're still not the main thing. The main thing is the king who came to take away the sins of the world. And and that does not minimize the importance of other things, but if we don't keep that the main thing, what ends up happening when we, when we come to these issues, whatever they may be, we either do one, or the other, do one of, of either. We either just blindly oppose it, or we blindly align ourselves with it. But if we keep the main thing the main thing, then we can be salt and light, which is what Christ calls us to be. The main thing is Jesus Christ the King who was crucified for sinners. I'm reading a biography on John Wesley, and he has a letter that he wrote to one of his itinerant preachers, and it's just it stuck with me. He says, "Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin, desire nothing but God. And I care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth." He says, "Give me 100 preachers who keep the main thing, the main thing, and then see how Satan quakes." and see how God advances his kingdom. What does God want from us, the church? Vine Street Baptist Church. We're not a huge church. To be a people who keep the main thing, the main thing. Who fear only sin. Who know only Christ crucified. Who want only the presence of God. Imagine 45 members of a church who fear nothing but sin, who want only the presence of God, who know nothing but Christ and crucified. And if we take steps toward that, right? we're not going to be there tomorrow, we take steps towards that. Watch how the gates of hell shake because the Lord that we worship is great. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess so many times we We take secondary things and we make them the main thing. And there is one main thing, which is that you left your throne in heaven. You came as the king of the world and then you died for sinners like us and we didn't deserve it. But that's the good news. That sinners like us can have forgiveness and life and hope and that you love us. May that ring deeply in our hearts. We ask this in your holy name. Amen.